Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we'll speak with Judge Andrew A. Mickle, who retired from the Atlanta Municipal Court System in 2013 after 31 years of service. Judge Mickle graduated from Harvard University with a degree in Slavic languages and literature before attending Emory University for law school. He served as a public defender municipal court judge, and chief judge under Atlanta mayors Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young. He began teaching as a part-time instructor in what is now the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology in the 1980s and taught until his retirement in 2015. During a phone call earlier this fall, Judge Mikkel told us the story of his childhood as a first-generation American born to Ukrainian parents in New York City. He spoke of his path to Harvard and his reluctant application to law school, all of which led him to a long and successful career in the criminal justice system. We also spoke about the scholarship established in his name for undergraduate students pursuing degrees in criminal justice and criminology at Georgia State University. So I'm joined virtually by Judge Mickle. Judge, thank you for having this conversation with me today. All right, my pleasure. So first things first, what was your path to the Andrew Young School? Well, to answer that, I had to contact Dr. Dean Dabney, and I had to ask him when did it become the Andrew Young School. And because I started teaching in 1983 uh, in the old College of Public and Urban Affairs, Criminal Justice Department, and uh, then Dabney, Dr. Dabney responded to me that... Uh, both the College of Health Sciences and the Andrew Young School started in 96. So I'd already been teaching for 13 years when AYS started. Um, and then I taught until uh, it was under the College of Health Sciences under Dean uh, Susan Kelly. And uh, then it became uh, associated with that Andrew Young School. Um, so I was already teaching for quite a while Um uh, by the time uh, the Andrew Young School was uh, established, um, 83 until, uh, let's see, I resigned or quit teaching in 2015, about five years ago. So then how did you get started teaching? Because you had had a whole career prior to that even. Yeah, I started um, in 1980. I was, uh, or 80, 80, I was an assistant public defender. And I uh, was asked by Dr. Jim Maddox, great constitutional scholar, Maddox asked me to uh, come and speak to one of his uh, criminal law classes, and uh, I did. So Georgia State reached out to me. It's not like I ever applied for teaching. I have since seen Jim Maddox several times in Virginia. He retired to his native Salem near Roanoke, Virginia. He had a very dry wit and wry wit, and uh, he said, well, if you think I had anything to do with your teaching, then uh, I will be glad to take credit for that. So that, uh, that's what brought me to uh, teaching at Georgia State. And, 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 and on that subject, there's a funny story. My first, you, back then you had to have uh, 12 students for the class to make, and I only came to 10 or 11. So the first semester, it was a quarter system then. No, no, uh, yeah, it was a quarter system. Uh, first uh, quarter, the class didn't make, so I had to wait till the uh, following semester. We're talking about the days of uh, filling in grades and use a number two lead pencil and fill in the oval. And that's how we used to turn in our grades way before uh, all this uh, Internet stuff and high tech stuff. So and I started teaching a, a, a course called uh, CJ before it became CRJ, CJ 370, 
Now it's CRJU 3700, and it was uh, required for all criminal justice majors. And uh, over the years, uh, I probably taught half a dozen different different subjects, different courses. You've had a very diverse career in both the university system and in the criminal justice system. But how did growing up as a first-generation American influence your career path? Because I know that that was very formative for you. Okay, well, my parents were from uh, eastern Ukraine, the area of the Crimea. They were from a little town, a little village uh, called Popovka, which couldn't be found on any map. And when I was in Ukraine, I couldn't find it either. Of course, uh, when I was visited the Soviet Union twice on Soviet legal study tours, it was 85 and 86. You couldn't get very far in a, in a, in a country that had no phone books. I couldn't even look at old relatives. But anyway, my parents, uh, the, the little village Popovka, maybe a uh, less than a, uh, 500 people, is outside Kharkiv, which is the third largest city in Ukraine. I have very strict parents, which is typical of a lot of European uh, families, especially Eastern Europeans. They were very old school. My mother would help me with uh, homework if needed, but they would push me. I would be, I, uh, would be doing my homework, looking out my bedroom window at my desk while my buddies from around the block were uh, out till the streetlights came on. I couldn't do anything until my homework was done. Uh, they also, uh, I wanted to play it. I remember I wanted to play clarinet. My mother said, and when my, my parents talked in English, because usually we spoke Russian at home, when my parents uh, spoke in English, my mother would sound like Zsa Gabor. Oh, no, Andy, you will play the piano. This is the best instrument. All music is written for the piano. So I had to practice 30 minutes to an hour every day on a converted player piano that we bought for $15, had it gutted. It looked kind of like an upright, uh, like a, uh, upright grand, but it was a really cheap piano, but it, uh, it worked. I would do four hands, which is two people on one piano. I remember uh, playing Beethoven's fifth. I did the treble. My mother, uh, did the bass, and we really had it down good. I, I went on, on to a from second grade through um, uh, high school, where I graduated in 1968. Uh, they they worked me a lot, and they really pushed me. So I, I, I like to say to my friends that I, I peaked in high school as valedictorian exchange student, editor of the high school uh, magazine. It was called the Owl Magazine, and a freak, I was a frequent contributor to it. It came out... Uh, three times every school year. I was an exchange student to Santiago, Chile uh, in 1967 between junior and senior years where I got a good jump start on Spanish. And uh, my parents, I'm thankful, had the wisdom to uh, bring me up speaking Russian because nobody speaks Ukrainian except Ukrainians and Canadians along the Canadian-American border where you have a lot of farmers of uh, Ukrainian descent, say from Minnesota over to Idaho. So that inculcated in me the Russian uh, uh, a desire to learn more languages. So going along with the learning Russian, uh, my mother, my parents, my mother taught me how to read and write it. It was a funny story. I went to a first school I went to, elementary school. It was called Knickerbocker School. It was uh, walking from my house. And uh, one day, I'm about five years old, my was awful. Uh, she sent a note home with me to my parents. Please teach your son English because he keeps babbling in Russian. And my mother had me write 
uh, right to know going back the next day. We don't know the English to teach him. That's your job, not ours. And my parents were learning English at the same time. And they later became naturalized in 1955 when I was five. And ironically, my mom went on to teach citizenship classes after she got naturalized. On that last point on, on the learning Russian, uh, the, uh, the alphabetic course is very different. It's got cases, you got questions, declensions, no articles. Uh, and it's a very difficult language for Americans to learn. But every night I would have to pick an article from our Watertown Daily Times. Uh, Watertown's about 70 miles north of Syracuse and in, in the Thousand Islands, Lake Ontario area. My father would have me pick out an article and translate it to him, and he would be correcting me. There were a lot of articles about Vietnam and Vietnam casualties. I remember that very very vividly, but uh, thankfully I was able to, I'd say I'm about 80, 90% uh, fluent in uh, in Russian. I got, got to Harvard uh, in 19, so the uh, fall of 68, and what's funny is I my advisor, I chose Slavic languages and literatures as a major because I jumped into advanced courses and linguistics and uh, literary uh, courses, um, and my advisor said, look, he said, look, Andy, you have... Uh, you could major in Urdu if you wanted to. Harvard had just about any major you wanted, at least in the subjects that were taught then. And uh, so I went on to speak, uh, to learn uh, or continue Spanish. I took, I uh, continued French. I'd had three years in high school. I took four years of French. I took four years of Spanish at Harvard, uh, three years of German. I just thoroughly enjoyed all that. Most of the courses were taught in the language. My notes were in Russian, they were in German, they were in Spanish. The languages peaked also uh, by the time I finished Harvard in 1972. My last year, I took a year of Swedish just as a lark, and I say a few words in that. The languages, as you learn, are the bad words first, uh, as a matter of survival. Uh, but I've always been a language nut. I can, in order of proficiency, the English, Russian, Spanish, French, and German is the weakest because it is the, the rustiest. That came in handy. Uh, the languages came in handy later. Not too many Russians in court. I had a few. They would claim not to be able to speak English. I would hit them with Russian, and they started speaking English really fast. Hispanics in traffic court. Uh, again, hablas inglés. No. And I'd start speaking Spanish, and they'd start speaking uh, English real fast. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Judge T.C. Little, whom I succeeded, and he rest in peace. And that was back in, 19, he retired in 1982. That's when I started. He said, Andy, keep your sense of humor. Uh, don't take this stuff home with you. You're going to see humor stuff. You're going to see sad stuff. You're going to see tragedy. Uh, we started out doing preliminary hearings on in the old police station, 165 Decatur Street. What is there now is your Pettit Science Center. And that's uh, pretty much how uh, I got started with the uh, PD's office. So let's let's talk about that, because like you said, you entered Harvard focusing on Slavic languages, and then you ended up having a career in the criminal justice system. How did you uh, make that transition? That seems pretty dramatic. That is a great question that I get all the time from Slavic languages and literature to law. Well, I didn't want to teach Russian. Uh, teaching only paid, uh, were I to get a PhD, teaching only paid $15,000 a year at the time. Um, 
for lack of anything else, you could say I backed into law school. My father would, his name was Anatole. My, Anatole, when I applied to Harvard, so what, is this, what is this liberal arts? Is no such thing liberal arts. So you need to be engineer or architect, which is what my dad was in Russia, an architect. Became a craftsman here when, he, when they got to the States. Um, and Natasha would say, oh, Anatole, Harvard is a good school. He wants to go to Harvard. He should go to Harvard. And so I was the first one to get into Harvard from north of the Syracuse area and up in northern New York in about 15 years. I'm the only attorney in my uh, whole extended uh, family. And nobody, my parents didn't understand why I went to law school. But um, as it turned out, it worked out. You know, the irony, Taylor, is that had I gotten 50 points higher on the LSATs, which was then based on an uh, 800 score, I would have gotten into my first two choices, which were Cornell and Georgetown. I didn't get in. I got waitlisted at Vanderbilt, but I had already sat out here, uh, so I didn't sit out another year. So Emory was the best law school I could get into at the time. Bottom line is, I, I, I kind of backed into backed into uh, law school for lack of anything else, but it worked out. And so after Emory, you practiced law for a while, and then you mentioned that you kind of backed into teaching as well, fortuitously. Uh, exactly, uh, but. Uh, Here's what happened. You go knocking on doors to get a job. I was in my class. I wasn't law review. Uh, I wasn't a highly sought after graduate. So uh, I became friends. I did a little clerking work for Marvin Arrington, a retired Superior Court judge, former city council member and former city council president in the 80s. Marvin hooked me up with a former state senator, then this is very interesting, Leroy Johnson who was the first black state senator since Reconstruction. He was more famously known for bringing Muhammad Ali back to the league in 1970 or 71 against Jerry Quarry, a, a one-round, two-minute fight. And uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, thanks to the senator, I, I got to meet him in his hotel room. Senator Johnson, RDA, Arthur Langford, as in Langford Parkway, was downstairs uh, running a program called United Youth Adult Conference. Uh, in short, I got to know the black community. I got to meet Maynard uh, through Marvin, through Senator Johnson. And so there I was, and I still can't figure this out. Here I am, a northern New York Yankee, Republican, uh, and was appointed to two positions by Atlanta's first black mayor, Maynard Holbrook Jackson. May he rest in peace. He died in 96 at the young age of 60. When Senator Johnson went to jail for a taxi eviction, I basically closed out his practice. Uh, but the problem was he'd already collected all the money. So I was basically starving had to take out loans to pay my secretary, which had been his secretary, and that led me to uh, apply to the public defender's office. So somehow I managed to get appointed to two positions by Maynard. The, the chief public defender position is appointed just like uh, judges. So I already knew Maynard for a year and when the uh, from a previous appointment. And Maynard was one of these people that if you talked to him for five minutes, you felt as though you'd known him forever. Uh, very smooth, very articulate, very charismatic. 
a booming voice. After public defender, I always wanted to be a judge as a public defender and sit there on Decatur Street and I'd be watching cases. I didn't do that. And uh, there were two positions Jackson was going to fill. He decided to fill only one. Maynard served three terms, two four-year terms that Andy Young did eight years. And um, then Maynard came back for four more because you couldn't go more than two consecutive terms. Maynard said, uh, I'm only going to make one appointment and uh, I'm going to leave the other one for uh, incoming mayor-elect Andrew Young to uh, to fill the other one. And that appointment is uh, Andrew Mickle, the city public defender. So it's uh, what's another thing that's really strange is that uh, I got a call and I remember this very vividly. I got a call in September 81 uh, from the mayor, mayor Jackson's office. And the question was, uh, do you have any objection to Andrew Young sitting in on your interview? Me, I'm going to object to a former uh, uh, UN, uh, U.S. congressional representative, ambassador to the U.N., and incoming mayor. Me, object. I, I took that as a good son. I said, no. And I remember the interview was in the northeast corner of the fifth floor of the old city hall on Mitchell Street, 68 Mitchell Street. So... I had the interview. I thought it went well. But here is a a good young story, if I may digress a little bit. He asked me one question um, only while he sat listening quietly. And uh, do my background from my resume. He said, um, uh, and the incoming mayor could ask anything he wanted. He said, tell me something about your religious background. Imagine that in a job interview now. And uh, I knew Andy was a preacher wasn't sure of the denomination. I said, well, Andy, I'm a mixed bag. This in the Russian Orthodox in the Lower East Side. That's where I was born. And I'm continuing to tell Andy about my religious background. And I said, but uh, the nearest church was three blocks away, and it was called Emmanuel Congregational. And I'm explaining to Andy what a Congregationalist church is, uh, kind of like a United Church. And I said, well, Indians that are wafers, like the Catholic Jews, they use cubes of bread, and instead of real wine, you get little half-shot glasses of uh, grape juice. And so I'm telling Andy Young what a Congregationalist church is, and guess what kind of preacher he was. So on the way out the door, Maynard winked at me and said, you just nailed that one. So that was uh, my first encounter with Andy. That's excellent. So you have been appointed to the judgeship. And as you said, you were brought in as a guest speaker into a class at Georgia State. And then you eventually came on as an instructor. So what do you remember about those first few years of teaching? How did you adjust from the courtroom to the classroom? Uh, It wasn't hard because Dr. Maddox, Jim Maddox, he had a great, he didn't have a lesson plan. I never used a lesson plan. He would just leap through the book and talk. And that was totally my teaching style. I didn't have to do a lot of prep because I was coming from the court and uh, I told war stories. I think students really like that. They tend to uh, learn from concrete examples, concrete anecdotes. And uh, that's that was a style that I adopted and kind of copying uh, Dr. Maddox. And then I would guest speak at classes for other professors. My first classes were Cal Hall. What a dump that was. 
recently was torn down, and Kell Hall and Sparks didn't have the general classroom building yet, which is now Dale Hall. My courses were assigned to me by whoever was head of the CJ department at the time. And I, I remember going through probably seven or eight, maybe 10 different department heads. One of the first uh, was uh, Bobby Friedman. He's still in the news quite a bit. He's uh, very good with criminology and police matters. And Dr. Dabney, Dean Dabney, uh, and Dabney was the last person to assign me my courses. Um, and sometimes I had two courses, criminal law, criminal procedure, the, the, the CJ or CRAU 3700, as I said, was a required uh, course of, of uh, majors. When Adderhold was built, that was a great building, and still is, uh, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed teaching there, but um, and then I would put Langdale Hall second, but Cal Hall and Sparks, you know how old those buildings were. So that's what I remember. The early years, oh, the cafeteria. It was called the B&D Cafeteria. You could smoke over there. My first time in there, and I was a smoker back then, court staff would go over there about 7.30 for breakfast. The food was good, but B&D, we would joke with the ashtrays in the cafeteria, those little silver cardboard ashtrays. And uh, we'd go over there for breakfast before starting court around around a.m., but the B&D, we joked that, uh, jokingly called the Bite and Die Cafeteria. So that, that's, uh, that's, what I, that's what I recall about the early years. Juggling, uh, well, I think your question was also alluding to juggling court, uh, court and classroom. Well, I was afternoon shift for years, and uh, so that allowed me to teach in the morning. As your career progressed and you started to transition to the later half of your career, you chose to establish a scholarship. And I'm curious how you came to that decision and why you ultimately established what is now the Andrew A. Mickle Scholarship. Very good story. Dean Susan Kelly uh, and uh, former director, now retired, named Margaret Matthews, director of development, called me and said, we'd like to take you to lunch at the uh, Commerce Club in the 191 building, top of the 191 building. I think it was Dabney, either Dabney or Topali, who, um, Dr. Dabney or Dr. Topali, who uh, put a bug in my ear that they want money from you, like $25,000. I said, what? So I went on the lunch, and I'm thinking, how in the world? I, I don't have that kind of money. Five, I ended up putting 18000 of my own money in there. Also leaned on friends and uh, relatives, lawyers to contribute. And uh, that was 2010, I think, when they took me to lunch. They said, we'd like you to have it endowed up to 25000 by 2014. I had it done in the, by early 2013. And then uh, when I reached that, I said, what happens at 25? So the school will maintain it. It will be, get, um, it will be gaining interest, earning interest. And moreover, you get to write the specs for it. So my <laughs> you like this. My specs were... Uh, or specifications or criteria were as follows. It has to be merit-based, 3.0 or better, cumulative, preference to uh, law enforcement, children of law enforcement, veterans, children of veterans, and a little preference to anyone with parents or who themselves were from upstate New York, my home area. And uh, it ran, uh, the school ran it by the legal department and said, that's okay. And then uh, the, the uh, 
Amanda Poucher, who's very good now, and now Director of Development, who set, us, set me up with this thing, this interview uh, with you. Uh, she, uh, she's been very good uh, running that department, but she, she would uh, take us to uh, lunch at uh, one of my favorite places, the uh, uh, infamous uh, Manuel's Tavern in uh, Ponzi Highlands. And uh, I would get, get to meet the get to meet the students, but I had nothing to do with with um, uh, selecting recipients. And you've alluded to it before, but being a judge can be somewhat of a thankless job. So, what is it like when you get to meet people who have been impacted by the other side of your work, the teaching side? You mentioned going to lunch with scholarship recipients and things like that. I get to hear from some of the students I knew because I had taught them, but that stopped after a. Uh, May of 2015, ones that I didn't know I wanted to see what they wanted to do. Okay, what's next? Where are you going from here? Have you considered graduate school? If not, why not? If so, what kind? And uh, I used to start out my classes saying, okay, how many of you want to become lawyers? And about a third of them would raise their hands, not half of their hands. If half of them, I said, well, I want to see change your mind about that, but jokingly. I, and I said, I would, I'll help you any way I can. You know, and so uh, I probably was writing uh, one time 10, 15 uh, recommendations a year. Of course, recommend, letters of recommendation, are, they can be lukewarm or they can be really strong, long, and good. I would not mention the person's grade if it was less than an A. And the good students really stood out in my mind. And uh, like I say, a lot of them went either to Georgia State Law School or Emory and, and various out-of-state schools. So I tried to keep them interested in the system. But, you know, I had one one student who remains a, a very good friend of mine. He went on to become an INS agent, which is now ICE. He retired about five years ago. He's from Las, He lives in Las Vegas. I how did he become a student? Well, his girlfriend was uh, in our courts, in, uh, worked for our court, and was my secretary, and then my courtroom clerk. And she said, hey, you got to take this guy, Mickle. This would have been about back in 1995 or so. And he, went, he was talking about law school, and I said, no, I think you, you should look at other things. Consider getting a, a master's in criminal justice. And a lot of uh, people did just that. Uh, you had a professor named... Uh, Donald Hunt became good friends with him and his wife. And he, you know, he was in the uh, private security and a payroll business, something like that. He said that he wanted to go to law school, but he was already in his 40s. I said, are you sure you want that? Why don't you consider a master's in criminal justice? Well, he went up and I said, we have a really good program. And then the PhD program took off. There are other options with a criminal justice degree uh, other than law school. And there's also, and it's important to note, that there's a real lot of lawyers. There were maybe a thousand lawyers in Atlanta, city of Atlanta, when I started uh, practicing in 1976. And, uh, oh my God, there are thousands now. There are many lawyers with a law degree who did something else because there's such a lot of lawyers. So that's why I like to tout the uh, other things that the Georgia State uh, program has to offer, both on the master's and PhD level. So what do you hope to accomplish through your work, your philanthropy, your career? If you could leave one mark on Georgia State or the city of Atlanta, what would you want your accomplishment to be? Well, let me put it this way. My 
epitaph would read would read I would want my epitaph to read something like this judge teacher men and mentor and uh, put all, all those all those together being with the city for 32 and a half years my name's always always going to be out there eventually I guess it may it may be forgotten but uh, I've been uh, blessed with a career and Teaching and judging, I think, is, is a great occupation. That great occupations and a great combination that I uh, enjoyed very much. Uh, now that I am seventy, uh, I should get started on writing the book that I've been talking about for thirty years because I, I took notes of various situations. Uh, names will be changed to protect the innocent as well as the guilty, but there were some real good uh, stories, both both tragic and humorous and sometimes involving the other languages. It's just been a, a great combination. I'm, I remain uh, available to guest speak or guest teach uh, on an occasional basis if anyone uh, is interested. Uh, but um, that's, uh, I think that's the legacy I'd like to leave, that he was a good teacher, mentor, and uh, I hope a good and fair judge. Well, Judge, we look forward to your hopefully eventual forthcoming book and we thank you for your time today and your continued support of georgia state okay thank you taylor to learn more about the andrew a mickel scholarship visit ayspsgsuedu slash criminal justice the andrew young school podcast is produced by taylor olmstead with production assistance from jennifer giratano and amanda Pouchet. our executive producer is ivani raval we are a production of georgia state university's andrew young school of policy studies located in downtown atlanta georgia to learn more about the andrew young school visit us online at ayspsgsu.edu or follow us on social media at AYSPS.GSU. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice. And we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. 